right. Well, good to see you all here tonight, church. If we have never met before, my name is Brian Laws. I'm one of the pastors here, and very glad to be worshiping with you on this second Sunday of the Easter season. And uh, so, looking at the, the verses here tonight, uh, as I was doing some of my study this week, I was doing my prep, I was reminded of a, of a simple saying uh, that I think was a favorite of a pastor of mine uh, in a bygone era when I, I was uh, in St. Louis doing seminary, me and my wife together. And um, the saying that was often repeated by this particular pastor was this. He said, uh, the gospel changes everything. Gospel changes everything. Small chance he might have been plagiarizing that from Tim Keller. I, I don't know, I'm not sure. Um, but who isn't plagiarizing Tim Keller, really? Uh, so, especially in the, you know, PCA, Presbyterian circles. Uh, but either way, you know, my impression of that statement when I heard this pastor say that was simply that, hey, this, this is a true statement. This is a, a good statement. But also at the same time, uh, my thought was, you know, it, if ever a statement just was kind of begging to be unpacked, that's it, All right? Like, like we, we want to clarify this statement instantly, like interrogate it with lots of questions, and I think these are important questions. Like, for example, you might say, okay, pastor, gospel changes everything. First of all, what exactly is the gospel? Like, what do you mean by that? Can, you, can, we, can we explain this? Secondly, everything? gospel changes everything really let's tell me everything is a lot of a lot of things it's a lot of stuff it's every every stuff right so let's is that are you for real about that thirdly you might say and ask what exactly is this change that we would expect to see the gospel changes everything what, what is that change what is it going to look like how is it going to come about all of these, I think, really important questions to ask of this, this statement. And I think maybe the more I've thought about it, maybe that's why this pastor, uh, previous pastor of mine, really liked that, you know, this saying and repeated it often is because he wanted to kind of stir the pot on these questions. He, he wanted it to be kind of this conversation starter about the gospel. What do, we, what do we really believe about it? What do we expect in light of the gospel? Now, in some similar ways, I think, as we come to the book of Romans, chapter 14, here tonight, what we find here in these particular verses, I think, is that Paul is continuing to unpack some very practical and some very, very uh, real-world implications of the gospel. Implications of the gospel for, particularly, as he's addressing and speaking to this church, this congregation in Rome, it, uh, thinking through, okay, what is, what is the impact of the gospel on how we live day to day, individually as humans? Uh, what is the impact, if we zoom out a little bit uh, and think of us as a community together and as a church? What's, what are the implications of the gospel as we think about uh, how we are living in the world as a witness to the world around us? Like just noted, you know, this church is in Rome, right? This capital city, the Roman Empire. 
It's no, no uh, insignificant place to, to be a, a community of faith and to have a witness. And so really, as uh, Paul is unpacking all of these things, what we see and kind of where we've been in this letter in the many weeks and even months where we've kind of traveled along, just verse by verse, chapter by chapter, we have seen that Paul really has unpacked in a lot of ways the what of the gospel already. He has defined the gospel in a lot of rich ways coming at it from multiple angles. For example, just thinking back through where we've been, uh, he has made known very early on just the... uh, clear reality that righteousness is only through the gift of God. No one is righteous. No, not one, Paul has said. He's made clear that by works of the law, no human being will ever be justified. No no one will ever be made right in God's sight on their own, on their own labors, on their own power, in their own power. In that Paul has kind of outlined and kind of delineated uh, the scope of sin and and its universality. It's kind of reality that, as we see in Romans 3, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of these things come kind of early on in the letter, and we could say this is the the downside, the, the dark side, the negative side, the bad news of the gospel. And so Paul doesn't leave his, you know, the, the church in Rome there, he moves on, he clarifies this incredible good news in light of those uh, dark and hard realities is that, hey, peace with God is possible. Reconciliation with God is a reality by grace through faith in Christ. It's not based on these works that you need to kind of work and, and accomplish this thing. No, it's, it's this gift. Good news also, Paul kind of goes on in chapters 9 through 11 especially. We saw there Paul explaining and reiterating, recounting just the incredible faithfulness of God. How God has been faithful to his people, faithful to his promises time and again, and, and how that faithfulness has led not only, you know, through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, this whole long story of the Old Testament, how it leads up into this very moment where Paul is writing to the Gentiles and how the gospel is breaking forth and going out and spreading among all people, all nations, because Jesus is wanting his light to go everywhere, every corner of the earth. So now all that good news, all of this incredible stuff, we've entered this section now that we're in chapter 14, Paul is continuing what he started in chapter 12, which is really to ask this, this so what question of the gospel. How then do we live? Kind of practical application in light of who God is, in light of what the gospel is and what God has done. It's this question of, okay, how does, it, does the gospel really change everything? And that's what he's, he's uh, reflecting on and kind of piecing out just one, one verse at a time. And I think what we see as we're looking at these particular verses here today, tonight, I would argue what we're seeing is that Paul here is basically saying to the Roman church, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. That is part of what it means 
to have the gospel real in our lives, to have the gospel change everything, is to acknowledge the lordship of Christ. And I think what Paul is, uh, kind of his logic here in this, uh, these particular 12 verses is that the more an individual believers in the church really come to know, really come to believe that reality of Jesus' lordship and live that out, the more resilient the church as a whole is going to be. The church as a whole becomes more resilient, more united, the more the individual people begin to understand and apply and believe that Jesus is Lord of it all. That's the number one thing. Why? Well, because, you know, if Jesus is Lord, Jesus is on the throne, implication, that means that my opinion is not on the throne. Jesus is Lord, my preferences are not on the throne. Your preferences, not on the throne, right? You could, for any of us, all of us, right? If Jesus is Lord, if he is judge, then unnecessary internal squabbling and kind of infighting issues kind of can be, they can cool off a little bit. They can take a back seat because we can all gather around and agree upon the central reality of who Jesus is. Savior, Redeemer, King, Lord. In verse eight of the text, we see here Paul emphasizing this reality of lordship, this title given to Jesus. Uh, if we were to count them up, we would find that title Lord 10 times appearing in these 12 verses. So we can tell it's an emphasis here of the text of Paul. And even, you know, it's 10 times throughout these 12 verses, three times here just in verse eight. Uh, I'll read it here, Paul writes this. He says, for if we live, we live to the Lord, the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. He goes on, so then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. We are his. We see this uh, lordship theme emphasized also pretty heavily in verse four of the text. Two more instances of the 10 Verse four, Jesus being uh, called out as Lord. Only one of them is a little sneaky. Depending on your translation of the Bible, at least from, from my, the ESV translation, it was a little sneaky. Uh, so verse four, I'll, we'll kind of piece this out here. Paul writes this. He starts with this question. Who are you, talking to these Roman believers, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And the sneaky, the sneaky one there is that word master. I don't know if you've got that as a footnote maybe in, in your Bible, but that word master is the same word if you're looking at you know, the original language of the Greek that it, we translate as Lord. So nine times in this passage, it's Lord. One time gets translated, at least in my, in my Bible, as, as master. Right? In Greek, it's the word kurios, Curios, depending on how you want to translate it. Kairos. Uh, so it is before his own master, his own Lord, that he stands or falls. He goes on, and then the second one, and he will be, and he will be upheld, for the Lord 
again, the Lord is able to make him stand. Put all that together, Jesus is Lord. That is, it is a huge emphasis of what Paul is saying in these verses. This is a piece of what it means to believe the gospel and to live it out, that Jesus is not just savior, that he is not just king, that he is, he is Lord as well. And it is a truth we're seeing as Paul is piecing this together at the, kind of the closing chapters of this letter. It's a truth that changes our lives. It changes everything. Ultimately, as I said a moment ago, it's something that as we own that, it makes the church more resilient, more unified. If Jesus on the throne becomes the main thing, other things less so. Now, pretty clearly, as we're looking at this letter, looking at the context of what uh, Paul is saying here, it, is, uh, it appears that Paul is addressing some divisions, some, some kind of fracturing within the Roman church, or at least some threats of fracturing and, and of division. We don't know everything as we're looking at just kind of one side of the conversation here, but we can kind of intuit and figure out a lot. And what we see here, as we look just at these verses, is that there are at least two groups that are kind of forming and dividing and squabbling in various ways, maybe more. One group we see right away, verses one and two. One of these groups, Paul labels in a very, I don't know, it seems almost abrasive to our reading today for you know sensitive folks, but one, one group he labels as the weak in faith, right? And then another group, he kind of implies, he doesn't say it explicitly, but they are those we can intuit are kind of the stronger in faith. And it's the weak in faith that Paul is describing here as those who are a little bit more restricted, those who are a little bit more limited and perhaps uh, wanting others to be restricted and wanting others to be limited as well, especially in the area of food, of diet, eating. It's, right? These are the people who are eating only what? Only vegetables. So Paul is saying that if you're a vegetarian, you're weak in faith. <laughs> you think that's it? No, no. No, there's more going on here than that. It's, it's, it's not that, right? So, but, but it is this reality that these who are weak in faith are, are restrictive and saying, no, there's a more narrow band that we need to live by here. On the flip side, the, the more we can intuit strong in faith are the ones who are more free in this area of diet and eating. They're un, le, less restrictive. They're the guys or gals, we should say, who can eat anything. We see in verse two, what does it say? One person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. So the, the you know, this person who is more free is saying, bring it on. It's all good. That's the first kind of swirling uh, controversy that we're seeing here. It's threatening some division in the church. Secondly, then, we see verses five and six. Also, we find another kind of split fracture in the works, potentially. And this time, it's about days, calendar days, special celebrations, events. And again, there's two factions. One that seems to be saying, hey, these special days need to be observed. Special days need to be honored. We need to take these seriously. And then another group that's saying, eh, you 
know, it, one day, the other day, tomato, tomato, it doesn't really matter. As we think about the context of uh, what's going on here, we can make some, some guesses, right? It, it might very well be the case that those who are saying, no, we gotta celebrate these special days, might be those, those Jewish converts to Christianity who still have a lot of that, some of that law in them. And they've experienced maybe even some of the beauty and some of the goodness of these, these fest, feast days and these festivals. And, and they've said, no, like, we still need to have this as a part of what we do. And it might be the Gentile Christians who didn't really care or know about that stuff in the first place who are saying, well, we don't, we don't care about that. That doesn't matter. That's not part of the gospel. We don't need that. Similarly, if we go back and think about the, the eating, the, the food, dietary issues, we can intuit some stuff there as well. That what, what is going on there might be a little bit kind of akin to what we see happening in 1 Corinthians. Especially 1 Corinthians 8 talks about this issue that Paul is addressing there of food sacrificed to idols. Some people are having this, this heavy conscience of saying, hey, this food was sacrificed to an idol and like that, that that's, you know, ugh. Like I know from, you know, again, it might be the Jewish believer who like has read his Bible and knows the history of how much going after idols has just been a trap and led to death and so much condemnation for the people of Israel in the past. And they're saying, I don't wanna go anywhere near anything that has to do with idols. Again, maybe it's a Gentile believer, a new convert who's saying, hey, you know, uh, this is just a hunk of wood. An idol isn't anything. It's just a, a hunk of stone that's been carved. So it doesn't really matter if I eat this. We could imagine the inverse too. Maybe, maybe it's the Gentile Christian who's a little bit more superstitious and they're like, nope, idolatry. And it's the Jewish one who's like, no, that's, you know, idols are just, a, you know, like what Jeremiah, Isaiah say, like this is, this is just the work of man. Someone carved this, it's no big deal. So we can see how there's these kind of these internal debates, these these squabblings, these, these back and forth things that are swirling here in the church. And it's the, the special days, that's the second controversy. Why there is definitely more we could probably infer, study, dive into, and, and kind of hypothesize about what's going on here. The bottom line, what Paul is bringing us to here, is simply that Paul just kind of calls everyone out on this. He just calls them all out. He, he says, you know, to those he has labeled as the weak who are only eating vegetables, maybe because of a sensitivity to this idolatry thing, Paul says, hey, stop, stop being judgy. <laughs> stop judging because this, this is the group who's more restrictive who's saying, hey, no, I'm not gonna do this and you shouldn't either. No. And, and to them, Paul is saying, do not pass judgment on others. <laughs> to, the, to those who are more strong in faith, who are freely eating, he, Paul doesn't give them a free pass either. He sa says to them, guys, don't despise those who are weaker in faith, right? Those who are more limited, those who have the sensitive conscience, don't look down your nose at them because maybe they they don't fully get the full freedom that they have in Christ from the law and from regulations and from all of these things. Don't, don't despise them. Don't, don't have an arrogant attitude and posture 
to these, these people. These are your brothers and sisters in faith. Even if you guys don't totally agree and you're still working this out and struggling together. Verse three, Paul is kind of nailing this down. He says, let the one who eats, you know, the one who's free and perhaps stronger in faith, or let not the one who eats, sorry, despise the one who abstains. Let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. Why? Where, where all this is leading. Why? Because God himself has welcomed him. God has welcomed the stronger in faith. God has welcomed the weaker in faith altogether. The God who is, bring it back, the Lord of all. He is the one who is welcoming. And if the God who is king of all things has welcomed us, welcomed you, welcomed me when we were his enemies, what is the implication for the way we treat one another, interact with one another in, in the family of Christ, in the body, right? This, there's, I think, rich veins potentially for application here at this point. We think about this welcome of God and the way that should impact us and kind of flow out laterally, that we become welcomers because our God has welcomed us, especially those who share this confession in Jesus, in his name. Open uh, ministries, open arms, hospitality even and perhaps especially to people who are different than us and who have different opinions about all kinds of things. The welcome should be open in Christ. We could think about applications as well for us in terms of the, the sin of the weak. The sin of the weak being judgmentalism. Right? How easy is it for us to kind of create a thing and say, hey, you know what? This is the right, righteous thing, and everyone needs to do it, just like me. Like, have we seen any of that in our world ever, recently? Right? There's lots of areas where we can reflect on, on the ways this sneaks into our hearts and into our lives, and we, we become these judge, judges. And, uh, you know, it, ironically, sometimes we think we're on our righteous high horse, righteous high horse, excuse me, and yet that is what Paul is calling, that's when you're weak in faith, right? When you think you're, I'm, ah, I'm this righteous warrior. And Paul is saying, nope, that's when you're weak, right? Flip side, the sin of the strong, right? The sin of the strong, despising, looking down, arrogantly. Looking down on brothers and sisters who just don't get it, you know? Oh man, if only they, they you know, went to seminary. If only if they studied a little bit more, maybe they would get it like I do and enjoy their freedom like I do. But as they are, poor, poor souls. Despising them, looking down on them. Condescension, arrogance. Both of those are traps, right, that we fall into without even realizing it so easily. And in the middle of this, how good is it that our God welcomes us, whether, we're, whether we are slipping into these things or not, whether we're weak or strong, whether we're judging or despising, or whether we're right on point, the welcome is extended. The gospel, 
is ours for the taking by grace and through faith. The God who welcomes us causes us to stand, enables us to stand before him, clothed in his righteousness and not in our own, despite our sins and failures. Verse four, again, to look at this for a second, Paul's writing, who are you, he says, to pass judgment on the servant of another? For it is before his own master, his own Lord, that he stands or falls. And he will indeed, Paul says, be, be upheld, for the Lord is able, the Lord is willing to make him stand. We stand by grace and grace alone through faith individually and that as we get that, that helps us become a resilient church. We pr prioritize the simplicity and the beauty of that gospel. Because, you know, friends, uh, I've been saying this is kind of sneaky, right? Judgmentalism, arrogance, these, these things sneak into our lives sometimes without even us knowing it. Because it, the, the way I think about it and kind of conceptualized it this week is that there's this beautiful formula of the gospel, which is, uh, you know, we are saved by grace through faith plus nothing. That equals everything. By grace through faith plus nothing. Yet we always want to add a plus sign for ourselves or for someone else. We, we sneak something else in there, even by accident. You know, it becomes by grace through faith plus, you know, this person, everyone needs to agree with me on this political issue. It's by grace through faith plus everyone needs to agree with my nuance of theology on this point. Everyone needs to, you know, understand and interpret revelation the way I do. Everyone needs to understand and interpret uh, and, you know, kind of dive into baptism the way I do. And those are the people I have true fellowship with, right? But that's how we become tribal, right? The gospel call is not to be tribal, but to welcome, to be a family, even among these differences, through these differences, because God in Christ has welcomed us. I think it's a helpful tool. I've used this in my own uh, brain, my own heart a few times, and I've kind of encouraged others to think this way as well, is to think about the reality of there, there really are, I think we can say this appropriately, there are tiers when it comes to the Christian faith. And we can, we can think about first tier, second tier, third tier issues. And I think it's a good practice to think about, okay, like I believe this, what tier does that belong on? <laughs> like th I confess this to be true, is that, is that primary? And, and if it is, what does that mean? Is that secondary? Is that tertiary? You know, like where, where does this fall? There's a lot to think through on that. It's a good exercise, I encourage it. But one of the things we can say just looking at these verses is that Jesus being Lord is first tier. It's primary. Jesus being Lord of all and of our hearts, of our lives, that is a primary issue in the gospel. We become a resilient church the more clear we are on that point and the more primary his lordship becomes in our lives. We become less judgy, ultimately, less divided. Hopefully, Lord willing, less tribal. 
all of the, these uh, reflections this week have uh, caused me to reflect on uh, a saying uh, from one of my favorite uh, radio pastor guys that uh, I heard when I was, you know, I think in high school was the first time I heard him. And uh, a guy you probably, many of you are familiar with, uh, Alistair Begg. The Scottish preacher, right? He, anything he says sounds awesome because he's got that Scottish accent. And it was through him. I'm sure it's probably not original to him. Uh, someone else probably said it first, but he, he says, the main things are the plain things. The plain things are the main things. It's this circular, kind of simple, but reliable statement. The main things are plain. I was also thinking this week, uh, of this, this senti uh, sentiment that I heard. Uh, I've heard it as I've kind of interacted with other pastors in the process of pastoring and, and uh, doing ministry. In Paradise and in Chico, I heard it a lot though, especially in Paradise after the fire. And you know, there was the, really this spirit of kind of coming together, of camaraderie after the fire of like, hey, let's, let's work together. I mean, this, there's been this huge devastation, this huge crisis. Let's, like, let's work together across denominational lines. Let's be in the same room. Let's figure this out. And someone said this at one point. I don't remember who it was. But they said, the walls that divide us on Sundays here and now don't reach into heaven. That, was, that stuck with me. I think there's, there's good truth in that. And, you know, sometimes there are walls, not, not even, you know, denomination to denomination or church to church, but just even within the church, we have these walls. And it's good to just get that perspective, to step back and say, hey, these walls do not reach to heaven. When we are in his presence, we are not gonna be tribally fighting over, hey, you need this perspective on that thing. Because Jesus is Lord. He is king. He is savior, and we can rest in that. And he'll straighten us out, right? He'll straighten us out one day on all these things. And I think that's maybe uh, one getting close to final point here to note, especially as we look at verses five and six. Because as we're saying like, hey, like the main things are the, the plain things and, and kind, of, kind of saying, hey, like let's focus on Jesus as Lord and not worry so much about all these other nuances and dot the I and cross the T on this and that issue. That's not to say that those issues are not important. And it's not to say that those issues, it's like in those issues, there is no right or wrong answer, right? That, that there's, no, there's no truth, that it's all subjectivism, right? I think there's a way, hopefully, I don't know if you were thinking this as we, as we look at the text, but in verses five and six, there's a way of reading these verses that I feel like can, we could kind of twist them a little bit and easily make it sound like there's, Paul is encouraging some kind of like spiritual subjectivism. Look at these verses again. Paul is saying, verse five, one person esteems one day as better than another while another esteems all days alike. He goes on, each, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Verse six, the one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord since he gives thanks to God while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. And it's especially that first part, the end of verse five, right? Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. And I think there's a way that we could read that and think, oh, well, you know, as long as you're sincere in what you believe, it doesn't really matter what you believe. You know, you can interpret the Bible any way you like and just, you know, as long as you're convinced in your own mind, that's okay. 
No. Right? Like there is, like Josh, no, Kevin, you mentioned it earlier, right? I think so. The capital T truth, right? Right? There's not, it's not all just like, hey, like I'm going to interpret this passage to mean I get to do whatever I want, right? No, we need to do good work of Bible study. It, the, the truth of God is always in the word. We need to know his word. And the, the reality is, is that if there anything in our lives, if we cannot do it, and as we are doing it, give thanks to God, if there's anything in our lives that we are doing and in the midst of it, we cannot be thinking, man, I am honoring God in this, or I want to, I want to at least do this in honor of the Lord. Like very, very clearly, those things are out of bounds, right? So just, you know, public service encouragement, know the word, right? That is how we ultimately know what it is to honor our God and our King. So, kind of wrapping it back, full circle, we are the Lord's. And the place where I do want to finally end it is not only as the Lord's do we know that he is the one who is ultimately going to be our judge and that we will stand before him, that we will answer to him for good or for ill. Our conscience, all of it, will be laid bare before him. Verse 9, we will be able to stand before the Lord because in verse nine, we see Easter, right? Verse nine, for to this end, Christ died and lived again that he might be Lord of both the dead and of the living. Christ died, lived again, that's Easter. That's what we just celebrated, right? And it's because of that, that we can live, that we can stand in his presence, that we can be clothed, as I said earlier, in his righteousness, In that, we rejoice in Jesus as our Lord and look forward to his return because we know that when he judges us, it's not on our record, it's not on our works, it's not on our righteousness, whether we were strong in faith or weak in faith or how it played out, but it's all glory be to Christ, my King, my God, my Savior, and my Lord. Amen? The more that is central, the more we become a resilient church. We can bear with one another with our different opinions, our different thoughts, because we're all bowing down, bending the knee to the same King, to the same Lord Jesus. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, God, thank you, God, that as Lord, you are so gracious. As Lord, you are faithful. Lord, as Lord, you meet us where we are at. Lord, you give us good gifts. You give us your word that we can read and understand. Lord, you give us this table that we're about to partake of. Lord, prepare our hearts for that right, right now, I pray. Amen. So, friends, speaking of the welcome of God. This is a place where the welcome of God becomes tangible. Table fellowship. God welcomes us to his table. 
And if you are one, whether you feel like you are weak in faith or strong in faith, and whether that's accurate or not, whatever your assessment of yourself might be, this is a place where you can come and have confidence in Christ himself as the object of faith. He is the reliable and faithful one. So if you are a baptized believer in his name, come and partake. Be encouraged deeply by these elements. These, uh, the sacrament which represents what he did and his faithfulness to his promises. Uh, if you're not, if you have never been baptized in his name, I encourage you not to partake of this table and to reflect on perhaps if you are not here today because the Lord is calling you to respond to him as Lord, right? To acknowledge him as Lord for the first time. Tell a friend if, if you feel like the Lord is stirring that in you. Talk to me or an elder or come pray with us after the service. We would love to talk to you more about that. Uh, in terms of logistics, it will do the normal deal. Gluten-free will be this row. We'll have two regular bread on those sides. It's all juice. And I want to pray for us. And if Josh and any other uh, elders, elder wives who are available to come down to help me serve would come forward, I would appreciate that mucho. So let me pray for us and you guys can come forward. Father in heaven, God, thank you again, God, that you uh, welcome us and that this table represents that. Lord, feed us now by grace and through faith, we pray. Amen. forward as you're led.